I'm more, I'm more of a storage wars yeah. kind of guy. Hell yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> well, should we get into Billy Paul here? That's one of the catchphrases yeah, for one of the main guys in Storage Wars is just him saying, yep. Is it? <laughs> yeah, and then he, like, like in later seasons, it's, like, painted all over his truck, and he has, like, shirts and hats with that on it. <laughs> really? <laughs> those, those shows just become, like, a parody of themselves while still taking themselves kind of seriously. Yeah. It's That's part of the beauty of it. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's do the episode or whatever. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, producer for Weezer's latest upcoming covers album, Me and Mrs. Jonas, a tribute to Billy Paul. <laughs> oh my God. That was amazing. Guys, I was so excited for that one. Yeah. That was amazing. I was really happy with that. That was out of the park. Did you spend our whole break like strategizing that one and that just basically i finished my research and the playlist and then i had two hours to kill and i was like all right i gotta think up at least one really good intro <laughs> i love the image of you just like hand on your chin it's like yeah running intro name possibilities for two hours straight. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty accurate wow. for my evening well I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles. I started a new job this week, fellas. Congratulations, Jeremy. What's that job? You you want to know my job? What is your occupation? Yeah, what's your career path? I'm a, a barista at a cafe. Mrs. Jones Cafe. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Peter, please tell me you have something to do. With the song "Me and Mrs. Jones," well, I am co-host Peter Cook, but for the purposes of this episode, you can call me Cookie Pete. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. It 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 at least was a reference to the artists that we're featuring this week. Yeah. Exactly. I see you did not opt for the lowest hanging fruit like Jeremy and I did. Oh, but we smashed that low-hanging fruit. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, no shame. I was trying to think of a way to work Counting Crows, the song Mr. Jones. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You, I think you're onto something there. There's something yeah. there. Maybe we'll let our listeners uh, hit us up with that. But <laughs> but let's uh, let's uh, switch gears to... Uh, I mean, you know, we, I think everyone knows who, well, I don't know if everyone knows who did, does the song me and Mrs. Jones, because I'm finding that, uh, the name Billy Paul isn't necessarily as well known as it should be. And I think that's, would you, would you say that he's underappreciated? I would say that. Interesting. I back Peter in this assertion. Yeah, we're going to do a, a Billy Paul album, but it's not the album that has me and Mrs. Jones on it. There's other Billy Paul 
material. This album is called Let Em In. And with the theme of our uh, first few episodes of, of season three, it was released on Philadelphia International in the year 1976. And this is roughly Billy Paul's 10th album. I, it was hard for me to figure out exactly uh, what number this was uh, with some releases that I mixed in there that I questioned if they, they counted as uh, official albums of his or not. But, you know, it, roughly 10th album. And we're going to start with the song We All Got a Mission, side A, track two. optimism there peter that is both deeply philly soul sounding and as we hinted at in the last episode carries some of that philly soul kind of social messaging blended in Mm -hmm. beautiful yeah and then on the instrumentation side of it it's like, you know, it's fully disco. It's got those string sections. It's got that kind of four on the floor energy. But at the same time, it's fully funk music. Like there's so much variation to what's going on. And again, the rhythm section just elevates these songs beyond belief in this Philly soul sound. Yeah, it's a really rich and mixed bag. And yeah, with that socially conscious message at the surface, it's just... Like when you put this record on, you're like, wow, why don't I hear more about this Billy Paul guy? (laughs) (laughs) That was a Gamble and Huff song that we just heard. The songwriting and production team of 
Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff, who we talked about last episode, the major players in the development of Philly Soul and the founders of Philadelphia International Records, which once again, this is the 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the label. So that's why we're starting off season three, focusing on releases on this label. And that was arranged by Bobby Martin. I think it was produced by Gamble and Huff, but arranged by Bobby Martin. Uh, Did we bring up Bobby Martin on the last episode, Sean? We did, didn't we? I think we did. So Bobby Martin was closely associated with Philadelphia International. He's most widely recognized for his production contribution to the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. The track that he did on there was MFSB KG. And of course, we talked about the group MFSB. Last episode as well, Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, or Mother, Funkin', Son of a Bitch. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thank you for keeping it clean there, Jeremy. For the children. Yes, for the children. And yeah, so that was a pool of more than 30 studio musicians who were the backbone of Philadelphia. More than 50 from what I've heard. Is it? Uh, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. yeah it's, it's quite large, it's, yes. It's a huge pool of musicians. And also notable for being a multiracial band. Yeah. They backed Teddy Pendergrass, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the OJs. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on. And yeah, just about anything put out by Philadelphia International is backed by MFSB. And they had a single. T-S-O-P, which stands for... The Sound of Philadelphia. Very good. That was one written by Gamble and Huff, the T-S-O-P. And it it was written as the theme for... Does anyone know? Soul Train. Soul Train. So it was a huge hit, obviously. So that's uh, MFSB in a nutshell. We talked about some of the players that were on the Lou Rawls album from MFSB. I know that MFSB included what was known as the Baker Harris Young Trio, which was Ronnie Baker on bass, Norman Harris on guitar, and Earl Young on drums. And unlike the Lou Rawls album that Jeremy did last episode, I don't have specific information as to the exact players on this Billy Paul album, but those guys, the Baker Harris Young Trio, that's basically the Tramps, who, of course, also have a strong association with uh, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, Disco Inferno. So that just kind of gives you an idea of the weight behind these backing musicians. Like, they were mm-hmm. just on... Heavy hitters. Yeah. Yeah. I, at this point, they were the driving force in popular soul music of, like, the whole country at this point. Yeah. Not as celebrated as something like The Wrecking Crew, but every bit is good and really as influential, I'd say. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's time for people to recognize Mother Funkin' Son of a Bitch. Beep! <laughs> I was late on the beep. <laughs> so before we go any further, what is y'all's background on Billy Paul? I knew this song, Me and Mrs. Jones, but I had no idea who did it. I didn't even know anything about Billy Paul until I put this 
sucker on and it jams. This record, after listening to it, I kind of like it more than the Lou Rawls album I picked last week. <laughs> That's wild. There's a lot of similarities between these two guys as singers as well, I think. Between Lou Rawls and Billy Paul? And Billy Paul, yeah, yeah. Sean, how about you? Billy was one of those guys that I was kind of aware of, knew I liked what little I'd heard, saw the records around, and I think I didn't start actually paying attention to him until I was working at the record store one day, and my good friend Peter Cook came in to buy a Billy Paul record, and I was like, well... If Peter Cook is coming into a record store to buy Billy Paul, then that means I need to start listening to more Billy Paul. Wow, it was probably this album, seeing how until yesterday this was the only Billy Paul album I had in my collection. (laughs) That must be it. I don't remember when that was, but yeah. And I just started paying attention a little bit more after that. I think shortly after that I got a copy of his big uh, album, 360 Degrees of Billy Paul, and love that and love everything I've heard by him. Yeah, he's got a lot of great material. I know Questlove from The Roots said of Billy Paul that he's one of the criminally unmentioned proprietors of socially conscious post-revolution 60s civil rights music and and feels that he should be right up there with Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, yet he's not. I first became aware of Billy Paul when I purchased the Beautiful Girls soundtrack in the late 90s it's a 90s film and has a great soundtrack and me and mrs jones is one of the songs on there and always liked it thought it was a great cut i think it wasn't until i uh picked up this album it's probably about 2013 sean the based on the uh year on the uh sticker the price sticker on the front of it some sometime in there okay picked this up but and I, i got this one and i was like, hey, this is great stuff and not necessarily what I expected from the me and Mrs. Jones singer either. I had was completely unaware of, uh, yeah, his more sociopolitical side that seems to be what a lot of people feel is overlooked. I'd say that one of his better known songs beyond me and Mrs. Jones is on this album, though, and that's a cover of Let Him In, the Wings Paul McCartney song. The title track of of this album is a a Paul McCartney cover. Here we are. Second episode of season three, and I'm here for another confession. I can't stand almost everything by Wings, (laughs) especially this song. Like, the more cheeseball McCartney the song is, the more I can't stand it. Well, how do you how do you feel about the pre-Wings McCartney solo stuff, I though? I do like some of the weirder stuff there. Ram. Actually, yeah, that's I like that almost more than any of the Beatles stuff that I don't personally get very into. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is that like kind of weird early solo stuff that's pretty good, and yep. then he went into like full cheese ball <laughs> mode, and I just hated it. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird that his his uh, first few solo albums post Beatles are almost kind of like this uh, weirdo precursor to indie rock and lo-fi. He definitely has a shift, like you get into those like silly love songs and let him. Oh be. my god, that song drives me bonkers. <laughs> but then you know, then he puts out McCartney too, and he has like temporary secretary, <laughs> one of the strangest 
Beatles related tracks this side of Revolution 9. So <laughs> I really like Billy Paul's take on this though. And I we we can we'll have plenty more to say about it, but are you guys ready to to listen to Billy Paul? Yes. All right, let's ready. Let's uh let him in. Side A, track one. faithful cover in some ways but it also it also doesn't feel like the same song at all to me i mean he yeah i I was gonna say that that may be a cover but he owns it he just completely made that his own track there yeah and he twists the meaning entirely from like a fluffy kind of meaningless paul mccartney love song into a social message and it Almost makes it tolerable for me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's better than the original, at least. Absolutely. (laughs) A lot better than the original. Only the original is the only thing that keeps me from enjoying it. (laughs) If if that didn't exist and you just heard this as it is. (laughs) Yeah, if I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, so he he changed up. It's it's funny because, yeah, it's... He kept some things very much the same, and then he he changed up other things considerably. The names that are mentioned in there is a, a big component of the changes. They're mostly deceased civil rights leaders that he mentions. The, there's an exception, and that's the first name he mentions, Pauline Williams. He says, Pauline Williams was my twin. His twin sister, Pauline, had recently passed away before he recorded this. So that was his little tribute to her and learning that and researching this was pretty heavy for me because 
I just recently lost my brother, Jonathan. He passed away suddenly uh, right after we wrapped up season two. And hearing that was kind of sobering in that you know, you, you, you're going through something that feels like you, you know, you've never dealt with it. Feels like something no one's ever dealt with this. And then you hear, nope, other people have gone through this too. So uh, definitely when I found that out while I was researching this, it definitely kind of made me stop and reflect a little bit. And then he, after that, he mentions, uh, oh, it's worth noting, yeah, his Billy Paul's real name is Paul Williams. And so his sister was Pauline Williams. He changed the name to avoid confusion with other Paul Williams, as there are many <laughs> in the music industry. And went with Billy Paul. And that's why I'm Cookie Pete on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) So otherwise, yeah, he mentions deceased civil rights leaders, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., JFK, Bobby Kennedy, Medgar Evers, and then Louis Armstrong at the end there, Louis Armstrong. And of course, there's passages from speeches by Malcolm X and Martin Luther King peppered throughout the the song i learned there was a lot more to this as far as kind of how it was received at the time um jesse jackson had opposed a song recorded by billy paul previously called let's make a baby it was kind of part of jesse jackson's crusade against sex on the air and a chicago station wvon actually altered the lyrics. Their engineers somehow altered the lyrics to Billy Paul's Let's Make a Baby to appease Jesse Jackson. And an engineer for this song, the Let Him In cover, an engineer at that same station spliced in parts of a Jesse Jackson speech in place of Martin Luther King. And when Billy Paul heard this, he was confused and pissed, as I understand it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so very, very strange that they would go out of their way to do that. And this was a considerable, it wasn't a huge hit, but it, you know, on the soul charts, it did all right. It reached number 91. And it's over the years, it's been included on a lot of compilations of Billy Paul's like greatest hit stuff. And it's definitely better known now. Like it's one of his better known recordings after Me and Mrs. Jones and a couple other songs. I think it's it's incredible how we can kind of yeah totally reimagine like Jeremy said kind of a cheese ball song. Yeah, hearing that juxtaposed with the speeches that are like, and in that unjust government, you must destroy it. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wow, that feels just an ocean away from what my brain hears when it hears this song. Yeah, I never would have expected that the song could have could be reinterpreted that way. I think it's part of the magic of, I guess, Billy Paul, and I'm assuming, uh, you know, the production team as well, which I'm pretty sure this is probably. Uh, let me look. Is this a Gamble and and Huff production number? It might. Yes, executive produced by Gamble and Huff. Yep, and then oh, and I see uh, produced and arranged by Jack Faith. We talked about Jack Faith in brief. Yeah, both him and Bobby Martin were involved with the the Lou Rawls album last week. Yeah. So, yeah, Billy Paul, though, 
let's turn our attention towards who he is, aside from his well-known affair with Mrs. Jones. Wait, my understanding is that he did not have an affair. Are you gonna get? Are you gonna cover this? Yeah, no, it, it's worth saying now. No, he didn't. This, it was not autobiographical. No. <laughs> but From my understanding, they were attributing it Billy Paul and some other people with Philly International were like out to eat somewhere and witnessed a couple who seemed very much like they were on uh, an extramarital date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, that's what I've heard too. That's kind of the origin of it. I'm sure he had to make he had to explain that and make that clear many times throughout his career. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Billy Paul, born Paul Williams in Philadelphia, December first, nineteen thirty four. He grew up listening to his mother's record collection, and she was an avid music fan. She had artists like Dinah Washington, Ella Fitzgerald, Nina Simone, and Johnny Mathis in her collection. Billy Paul says that he he himself was particularly influenced by female jazz singers, he believes, due to his high range. He identified more with their range. Um, his biggest influence is actually Billie Holiday. By age 11... He was singing on radio broadcasts in Philadelphia. He attended the West Philadelphia Music School and the Granoff School of Music for formal vocal training. I guess he always wanted to be a sax player, and he approached vocals as if he was playing a horn, which totally makes sense to me. If you, even his biggest hit, Me and Mrs. Jones, it's all of that fluttering around that he's doing. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it seems more like a saxophone unleashed. He actually Yeah. Uh, I was also going to say that I feel like there's a lot of very unique vocalists in the Philly soul world. Billy Paul definitely being a standout, but then when you also think about groups like the Delphonics or the Intruders, that was kind of a theme is just like very very unique vocalists and I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely helps it stand out sort of be its own unique thing. As a youngster, he played some bills with Charlie Parker towards the end of Parker's life and uh, learned a lot from doing that, he said, too. He started performing in clubs and college campuses. In 1952, he traveled to New York and entered the studio for Jubilee Records, and he released his first single, Why Am I?, in April of 1952. And he released a few singles, but they didn't chart. And he was drafted into the army in 1957. So his career stalled a little bit, but he was stationed in Germany with Elvis Presley and Gary Crosby, Bing Crosby's son. And so Gary Crosby and Billy Paul started the Jazz Blues Symphony Band. They tried to get Elvis to join, but he wanted to be a Jeep driver. Uh, some other noteworthy members from this time period include hard bop jazz pianist Cedar Walton and saxophonist Eddie Harris. Oh. Yeah, another I'd Buy That alum. Why were all these dudes in the military? I Somebody has to get to the bottom of this. This weirds me out. <laughs> I mean, I guess he was drafted. That's a little different, but. Yeah, 
So Billy Paul's focus on jazz in the service led him to pursue jazz music when he returned to civilian life. He also did some boxing in the army, which he entertained the idea of pursuing boxing as a career. But on one occasion, he got hit too hard and was like, nah, I'm going to be a singer. (laughs) Understandable. Yeah. In 1959, he joined the New Dawn record label and released the single Ebony Woman. That and its follow-up, There's a Small Hotel, did not chart, so he was still struggling commercially. He had a brief stint with Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, but was fired because he did not want to dance. He was then with the Chicago doo-wop group The Flamingos for a while. And around this time, he established a very close friendship with Marvin Gaye. And I, I guess they remained very close to the time of Marvin Gaye's death. He, he described it as something, you know, in later years, Billy Paul still described that as something he struggled with, losing Marvin Gaye. Well, at this juncture, I'd like to pause in the story of Billy Paul to play another track. And this is another song known from other artists. This is the song Without You. Do we know who originally recorded this song? Mariah Carey. <laughs> That's probably how I first heard it. <laughs> Tori Braxton. <laughs> you mean Tony Braxton? Tony Braxton. <laughs> well, so there's the whole thing that like Mariah Carey made the statement the one time, like everybody thinks I wrote this song, but it was actually the great singer Nilsson. <laughs> But Nilsson stole it. <laughs> it wasn't even his song. Well, stole it, covered it. I mean, yeah. whatever. But I, I think the, uh, uh, Badfinger is the original author of that song. Correct. Yeah. He apparently Harry Nilsson heard Badfinger's original version of "Without You" at a party in the like 1970 and thought it was a Beatles song that he didn't know. And as soon as he found out that it was actually Badfinger, written by Pete Ham and Tom Evans of Badfinger, he decided to cover it. And of course, his version kind of became the definitive version of the song. So Billy Paul's take is very much in line with the Nilsson version. But I think he still knocks it out of the park and makes it his own thing. So let's check that out. Side B, track one. No, I can't forget this evening. For your face as you were leaving But I guess that's just the way the story goes You always smile but in your eyes Your sorrow shows Yes, it shows No, I can't forget tomorrow But I think of all Okay. 
like that song is part of the maybe the part two of the great american songbook it just works so well no matter who's covering it or what genre it's being interpreted as and billy paul knocks it out of the park with that one i do wonder if there's anyone out there who heard the billy paul version first and thought it was his song and then found out about all the other versions it has to exist somewhere yeah yeah possibly i mean the nilsson one was a huge song in 71 72 but you know yeah. it's very possible that Someone found it by way of Billy Paul first. I didn't even know Mariah Carey did it, guys. Really? I love Mariah <laughs> Carey, honestly, and I didn't have any idea she did a cover of it. That was a huge song for her, probably in 94. It was off the Music Box album, so. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how I first heard the song was with, with her version of it, but, and then, yeah, came to know the Nilsson version later, and at some point, we're going to find a way to cover a Harry Nelson album. There's still ones out there that we could do, I think. Yeah, like a little touch of Smilshin in the night, something like that. Yeah, or son of Schmilson. <laughs> yeah. That one, Sean, that song we just listened to was produced and arranged by your boy, Dexter Wanzel. Yep, love it. You just won't shut up about Dexter Wanzel, Sean. He's so good. His solo records are incredible. You know what's really cool is uh, I went to the YouTube upload for one of the youtube uploads of the song we just listened to and he's leaving a comment there about how he loved producing arranging and arranging this song for billy paul wow <laughs> that's so cool yeah he worked with the jacksons grover washington jr and lou rawls unmistakably lou our album from last week yep and it's interesting because a lot of his solo material is much heavier into the like space funk disco kind of thing but he was a very versatile musician you know he could he could rein it in and make some real traditional sounding lush arrangements for these people mm -hmm. yeah dexter wanzel has some solo stuff huh oh yeah i'll have to check that out well let's go back to billy paul continue his trajectory here so he continued singing in jazz clubs in the late 60s he and his wife and manager, Blanche Williams, had invested some money in recording a debut album for Billy Paul. I mean, he's at this point, you know, he's been singing since the 50s and he still does, you know, he has a few singles to his name, but no official debut album. So at this time, while he's working on putting together his debut album, one Kenny Gamble caught a performance of Billy Paul at Philly's Sahara Club. And Billy Paul impressed Gamble, and so Gamble asked Billy Paul to be on his new label, and so they took what Billy and his wife had already recorded and cut a few more tracks to create his debut album, Feeling Good at the Cadillac Club. And this was actually, so this was not Philadelphia International. This was gamble records at this point in time and it was the second album on gamble records i think the first one was by the intruders and so it was a studio album that tried to mimic billy paul's club show as a jazz singer and it was 
a commercial flop, but it did cement his rep, his relationship with Gamble and Huff. I, th- I think they knew they had something with Billy Paul and they were willing to give him more than a few shots. His second album, Ebony Woman, was released on Neptune, which is, I think, another Gamble and Huff imprint. And yes, uh, yeah. the uh, title track from that was a new version of his 1959 single, Ebony Woman. That merged jazz and soul. And it has, so now, yeah, they're leaning him more in that soul direction. And it had modest success, but he, and he almost landed with his third album, Going East, released in 1971 on the newly formed Philadelphia International Records. He did a version of Magic Carpet right on there that like almost took up. And his fourth album, 360 Degrees of Billy Paul, was the song Me and Mrs. Jones, which was a number one hit for the last three weeks of 1972. And it was Philadelphia International Records' first number one. It won a Grammy. So it's big time, but funny enough, some stations refuse to play it because of its theme of adultery. And his follow-up single. I'm sure they stopped adultery by not playing it, too. Exactly. Nobody had <laughs> had that idea. He came up They're with doing a, God's work. Billy Paul and, and the, you know, the Philadelphia International Records came up with this new concept of adultery. <laughs> they had to sell it to the kids. Yeah. <laughs> So his follow-up single to the massive success of Me and Mrs. Jones caused even more controversy. That was the song, Am I Black Enough for You?, which was penned by Gamble and Huff. And, you know, the thing is, are are either of you familiar with that song? Yeah, I've I've got that on 45, actually. I love that track. Yeah, it's a great, funky song, you know, and it, it empowered black audiences. And the thing is, it's not, it's, I would say the title of the song, which, you know, he does repeat, am I black enough for you? That might be the most confrontational thing about it. It's, it's not, it's a relatively tame song in the grand scheme of things. It empowered black audiences, but it totally alienated white audiences, especially, you know, the white audience that he had found with the success of me and Mrs. Jones, the crossover success. He was actually, against releasing it as the follow-up to me and Mrs. Jones. And it did end up stalling his career. No one wants to take responsibility for this decision. Uh, Clyde Davis at CBS, who were the distributors of Philadelphia International Records, you know, he he was against it, even though he called it an all-time great record. He thought it was a great song, but it was not a good follow-up to me and Mrs. Jones. And, and we've talked about Clive Davis a number of times on the podcast previously, often not in very positive light. True. I think he's on our bad list. I think so. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, he's, he's some great things have been done through him, but you know, far from a saint as is the case with probably the majority of the people in the music industry, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's, that leads me to gamble and huff kind of also didn't want to take responsibility for this. Like, and they even, from what I've read, they kind of made some disparaging comments about how Billy Paul's real problem was that he just never did anything as good as me and Mrs. Jones. And it's like, you guys are responsible for him. Like you guys are the ones <laughs> writing his songs. <laughs> you're the ones producing him and, and you're blaming him. <laughs> 
the thing is, you know, obviously it's a song, Am I Black Enough for You, is a song that Billy Paul would later reflect back on more fondly. You know, it's, and now it's definitely seen as something that's kind of ahead of its time. So his follow-up to the success of 360 Degrees of Billy Paul was an album called War of the Gods, which is, uh, I just discovered that while doing research for this. And that is this, it contains like lengthy psychedelic and electronic soul. I think, Sean, you're familiar with that album, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And the, the album art is incredible on that as well. The whole package is just amazing. Yeah. And that's one that I think nowadays uh, commands some respect like record collectors know about that album Mm -hmm. it's one people look out for you can still find it relatively cheap i picked one up yesterday for i think five bucks a few more let's flash forward a few albums to the one that we're talking about today let them in this was billy paul's first lp to crack the top 100 pop album charts since 360 degrees of billy paul this album reached number 88 and he had his usual success on the soul charts. It hit number 27 on the soul charts. His follow-up LP to this, Only the Strong Survive, would be his last charting album. He was on Philadelphia International for nine years, pretty much all of the 70s. And, you know, he did have some success, but I think everyone who's aware of him, it's pretty uh, unanimous that he deserved better. Some people blame Gamble and Huff for not picking his best songs to release his singles. He released a couple albums in the eighties. His final studio album was in 1988. He retired in 1989, but he did continue to perform and eventually release some live discs. I know at some point he and his wife slash manager Blanche fell into substance abuse. I think by 88, he was in rehab. I believe he ended up suing Gamble and Huff in the early 2000s for unpaid royalties on me and Mrs. Jones. And he was successful. He won half a million in unpaid royalties. And this paved the way for other artists who had been kind of mistreated in their contracts from the label, including the OJs, as well as Archie Bell. So that was a, a big success for him. Yeah, and I I had read that like Gamble and Huff had made statements. They're like, "Oh, this was a simple accounting error. Like we would never do anything to hurt our friend." But then as soon as Billy Paul wins the lawsuit, it's like, "Oh, and there's just simple accounting errors with like half of your roster." Apparently, interesting. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's all. You know, I know we're we're here to celebrate Philadelphia International Records, and Gamble and Huff are the main people behind that. Not they did some great things, but you know, they, there's some sketchy stuff in there too. I will say. <laughs> There. Yeah, money has a way of bringing that out in people sometimes. <laughs> Unfortunately, Billy Paul passed away from pancreatic cancer on April 24th, 2016 in his New Jersey home at the age of 81. So he did have a good run, but I think, yeah, he deserves better. And there, there's a documentary that came out that I called Am I Black Enough For You that I was only able to find the trailer online, the reviews didn't necessarily give it high praise. So I, I think he's still due. I, I think, you know, Questlove has the ability <laughs> to, as proved by his uh, Summer of Soul documentary, uh, he probably has it in his power to... Uh, Questlove, we're calling on you. <laughs> calling, <laughs> calling Questlove. He has it in his power to uh, get word out on Billy Paul. So it might happen. We might still see a Billy Paul renaissance here. But, you know, we're trying to, we're doing our part here and I'd buy that for a dollar. I was really impressed with, yeah, like kind of like Questlove said, 
the fact that he seemed to be covering similar territory to what people like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder were doing, you know, roughly at the same time, maybe even a little earlier. So yeah. And, and there's a lot of great Billy Paul albums. This one, I've seen this one described uh, on all music as being antiseptic. Like they're kind of saying that it, you know, it was, wasn't one of his stronger releases. And I didn't know where they were coming from until I heard the stuff on 360 degrees of Billy Paul. And uh, what's the other one, Sean war of the gods. Yeah. <laughs> when I heard that stuff, I was like, okay, I can see how maybe if you came in through those albums and then heard this, it might be, you know, seem like a little more uh, phoned in, but ultimately I'm not hearing that. I think it's a great album and it's one that you will find cheap. Yeah. I mean, just because it's not as adventurous as some of the early stuff doesn't make it a bad record in any way. It's a really, really good kind of straightforward dance record. And I'm here for it. Yeah. It's almost, it's like penultimate Philly soul in my mind, <laughs> like not really straying from that script, but like fully inhabiting that sound. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great. So, and you know, obviously coming at it from a place of mastery at this point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, Sean, what did you put together for a Spotify playlist for this episode? So I've got Phyllis Hyman, who we've mentioned before on the show. I've got some MFSB doing the mentioned mega hit TSOP. The main ingredient are on here, a group that I think is uh, has some good parallels with the Billy Paul sound. And then the other great male vocalist from the Philly Soul era, Teddy Pendergrass. The OJs are on here. Ella Fitzgerald, who we mentioned was a big influence on Billy Paul's vocal style. I put another older soul singer that doesn't get a lot of love anymore, Billy Stewart. And I think if you listen to that track, you'll hear some uh, parallels in vocal styles there. The Spinners are on there as well. Dinah Washington, who was mentioned. And then there is a Holland Oates track that has an especial philly soul vibe to it because those guys came up in this scene as well and were big big philly soul fans and knew how to do it right apparently rich girl was another song that jesse jackson was going after yeah yeah he was not a fan of that one either <laughs> can't say bitch on the radio what will the children think <laughs> all right well excellent that's about all i have to say on billy paul for this episode any final thoughts from y'all Yes. I was going to say that I feel like the career and legacy of Billy Paul has a lot of parallels to the legacy of Philly Soul in general, in that he's famous, somewhat of a household name. A lot of people could tell you at least one of his songs, but he's not as famous as he deserves to be. He should be listed easily as like one of the great soul singers of all time he should be listed right next to marvin gay and i feel like there's a lot of artists from this time period and people behind the scenes in, who are similar ways they're making hits incredibly influential change the course of soul music but they don't get as much respect and attention as some of their contemporaries very true we're doing our little part here I think you can trust some people with two first names. And, and Billy Paul is one of them? And Billy Paul is one. Unless you are married and your last name is Jones. <laughs> then you can't be trusted. <laughs> then he can't be trusted. 
in the green room, Jeremy was, was saying how he, he doesn't trust people with uh, two first names before we started recording, I think. And uh, I think we've, we've at least changed his mind on Billy Paul. So we've accomplished something here. All right. Let's wrap it up then. <laughs> All right. What are you sending us on? We're going to go out on the song, How Good Is Your Game? This is by Michael Burton and Phil Terry. They're the writers of the track. They also seem to have some strong ties in Philadelphia International. And this is actually the highest charting single from the album. It reached number 50. So we're going to get out of here on that. Thank you for listening to I Buy That for a dollar. I am your co-host, Cookie Pete. I'm co-host Sean Hartman. I'm co-host Pumpkin Cheesecake Jeremy Ruggles. I'm hungry now. Same. Can I change my name? I don't want to be the only one without a nickname. Yeah. All right. I'm co-host Tasty Cakes Hartman. Oh, very Philly of you. Thank you. (laughs) 